welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your host, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. I'm delighted to be joined by prolific author Yves Engler. He's published 11 books and is also an active, active journalist who is constantly um, creating and being published in many mediums. One of the things that seems ironic to people when I travel is that uh, Canada's PR, you know, their public image is that of peacemaker. And when you think about Canada being an arms manufacturer, uh, Canada being allied in the States in promoting war or promoting expansion of NATO in areas that clearly will arise conflict, seems counterintuitive. Uh, you know, I, I only have to look at Canada's history with its own treatment of its own people, you know, of its indigenous people, and I know that. Canada has, you know, it's an empire building project. So can you talk a little bit about not only our, our, our history, but why um, it is important for us to decolonize the way we understand this project of, you know, national government that was literally created for corporate benefit, not for the people? There's a, a pretty clear line between understanding Canadian uh, a promotion of, of empire around the world today and over the past, you know, sort of 150 years since the uh, formal founding of, of, of Canada and the, the project of British uh, uh, expansion and conquest of Turtle Island. In my most recent book on the history of the Canadian military, I basically you know, show how the Canadian military is just... It, it, its roots are the force that that conquered uh, these lands from indigenous people, and you know that was often very brutal. Uh, and of course, you know there's a lot of discussion about decolonization and reconciliation, and you know there's some steps that go in the right direction, but overwhelmingly, the, the whole colonial process is continuing along, and uh, you know real questions of, of land back and 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 really you know genuinely reversing. Uh, the colonial uh, process are, 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 you know, left aside. And when, when the uh, pipeline companies and the fossil fuel companies have some territory that they, they see a lot of money to be made from, you know, the question of indigenous rights gets uh, very quickly uh, uh, thrust aside. So, so that's part of, uh, you know, certainly the history and understanding uh, Canadian foreign policy, understanding how Canada's right at the center of the uh, Imperial core, uh, you know things like the Five Eyes, the Five Eyes intelligence apparatus. That you know, recently they they Canada banned Huawei, the Chinese technology company, from the 5G and the 4G of of Canadian internet. The basis why we have to ban Huawei is because our Five Eyes allies are have you know are fearful that that uh, that this Chinese company will uh, enable spying or you know espionage on Canadian internet and, and other uh, entities. 
but but you know, in fact, is actually you know the other way around, where basically they they don't want this, this Chinese company because it'd be less likely to follow the Five Eyes rules around spying. But but the the broader point that, I, that I'm trying to uh, mention is, is that the Five Eyes. Well, what is it? It's, it's New Zealand, uh, the UK, Australia, and the US. Well, what connects those those five countries? It's not it's not language. There's many more Indians or Nigerians that speak English. Uh, it's not geography. What connects them is that they're that it's Mother England with the with the four other European uh, settler states. And so so we see right up, to, up until today when we talk about you know anti-racism and stuff like that. Right until today, it's open that our that our like basis an important basis of our foreign policy is this settler intelligence apparatus and reason we have to get you know in greater conflict with china is because we have we have to be working with our with our five allies um so so you know it's really the 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 depths to which uh canada is is continues to be rooted despite all the you know sort of rhetoric and, uh, around you know reconciliation continues to be rooted in a uh, eurocentric uh colonial uh, ideology and and um, and alliances is, is you know is, is significant. So that uh, those are some of the elements that we need to uh, challenge while pushing for a uh, a less damaging uh, uh, Canadian foreign policy. Yeah, the invasion in Ukraine has been tragic for the people of Ukraine. Um, you know, early in the um, conflict, the Ukraine was seemed ready to negotiate a peace agreement, uh, but the U.S. quickly intervened, and uh, we hear now Biden say there will be no concessions. You know, we cannot tolerate concessions. Can you talk a little bit about this specific? importance of this area for the U.S.? Why are they so um, embedded in sending billions of dollars in weaponry in Canada? We know Canada is invested because they like selling weapons and we have a weapons industry here. But why is the state so embedded, you know, in fighting Russia through Ukraine? Well, I think that the the U.S. empire uh, wants world domination. I think that's pretty straightforward, pretty clear. And Russia is a country that's not supported. It's a country that's fairly powerful, not supported. Unlike a country like Germany, which is a you know fairly fairly powerful, or maybe a country like Japan, which are also you know serious economic uh, powerhouses. Uh, those countries, their their geopolit their geopolitical outlook and their is completely subordinate to to Washington's you know to NATO, Washington. Uh, Russia is not like that. So. In that sense, Russia is this big country, 150 million people, as viewed as having a, a, a fairly effective military. There's question marks about that now. So from the standpoint of Washington, weakening any state that is not uh, you know, subservient to, to the U.S. Is, is something they want to do. It's, uh, you know, that from the logic of, of state, you want to weaken competitors if you can. And especially if it's a fairly limited cost to you, and in the case of, in the case of this war, this proxy war, the costs are primarily, while there is you know costs to you know Canadian taxpayers, American taxpayers, the costs overwhelmingly are of course the Ukrainians. Um, so, but but ultimately, from the standpoint of of state domination, that's relatively low uh, low costs. So, so if they can get you know Ukrainians to to weaken Russia, that 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 just 
makes sense. You know, at the more maximalist, there are American officials have raised the, you know, the, the specter of, of ousting uh, Vladimir Putin and sort of regime change. And then there, if you look, there's other, uh, clearly a line of American planners would like the idea of actually, you know, breaking up the Russian Federation and, and you know, going to that to that extent. So, so there are, I'm not saying that that's, that people believe that that's a realistic uh, scenario in the short term, but that's that is kind of the thinking of some some elements of the of the uh, of the American establishment. So again, you know, you, you combine the geostrategic question of just wanting to weaken Russia, alongside the fact that there's a a whole bunch of arms firms that are that see this as serving their self interests. Combined with let's be clear that you know Ukraine. And Ukrainians, there's a whole faction of Ukrainians that see in this as, um, and I think correctly, uh, as, as you know, the sort of creating Ukrainian nationalism, right, and stoking Ukrainian nationalism. Nationalisms generally are 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 developed in competition with other nationalisms. So, you know, if if Russia invades and that stokes uh, uh, Ukrainian nationalism, and so there's factions of of Ukrainian political life. Uh, that are that you know view this sort of stoking of nationalism as this great uh, you know, awakening of the of the Ukrainian um, uh, nationalist uh, mentality. Um, so that you know these are some of the forces that Canada has been supporting going back to the Soviet times within the Ukraine. And if you look at the roots of that, there you know that goes back to um, you know the neo Nazis that that in, in Ukraine that supported uh, you know who, who who killed killed tens and tens of thousands of Poles and. And Jews during, uh, during World War Two, there are uh, a series of different forces that are that are coming together that help explain this. And I, I think we should also be clear, like within Russia, you know, Russia, Russia is a country that spends four percent of its GDP on the military. You know, it's it, it has a history of imperialism. It, you know, Russians, you know, view themselves as a there's a whole imperial ideology within Russia. So there's also you know forces within Russia that like you know warfare and. And and share that type of that type of ideology from the standpoint of I think Ukrainians most obviously, but also the world more generally. These are ideologies and and uh, you know that we need we need to reject um, uh, to deal again to go back to it, but to deal with things like the the climate crisis, but also just to, to you know avoid uh, warfare. And, and this war still has the possibility of escalating into something even worse, as bad as it is. Uh, you know, it could get escalated to something even worse. And, you know, the two main nuclear powers uh, are, you know, involved in this. And uh, it's not inconceivable to imagine, um, you know, other countries getting getting more directly involved and, and, uh, and leading to something even more uh, devastating than it already is. I remember the... Um the war in Iraq united so many people worldwide against the war. You know, it was a preemptive war. They were preempting what Iraq might do, right? We later found out that that was, you know, all their so-called evidence was made up. Um, in, in any case, the invasion took place, and perhaps many people have forgotten about the thousands and thousands of people that died. Um, but the devastation continues, and likewise, Afghanistan was subdued by war and terror at the U.S. for over 20 years, and then they now left. 
I guess what I'm trying to ask is how has this history informed the level of uh, violence that we are now witnessing? You know, how is it different from that overt war and yet perhaps even more damaging? You know, people say, I myself have been in debates and these uh, different panels with, with people who are basically, you know, supporters of Canadian foreign policy, and they, they'll complain that you, you, you're drawing moral equivalency between what the U.S. has done and what Russia has done. And mean, when they say that, they mean that, you know, what Russia has done is way worse. In fact, if you look at Iraq in 2003, by any uh, measure, what the U.S. did is far worse than what Russia's doing in, in Ukraine, be it from the standpoint of the illegality, contravention of uh, the U.N. charter, be it at the level of, um, you know, geography and, and the whole question of unprovoked. So they, really, they repeatedly say that Russia's invasion is unprovoked. Um, but if you compare the U.S. invasion of Iraq to to Russia's invasion of, of uh, Ukraine, it, it, you know, it's far, far more... A uh, stronger case to be made that the Russia's invasion was provoked by, by U.S., Canadian, and other countries' policies. Um, yet, yet uh, Chomsky did a, a search in Google of how many mentions there are of unprovoked war in Iraq versus unprovoked war in, in, in Ukraine, and it's found something like two million mentions around Ukraine and, and ten thousand mentions around Iraq. You know, people elsewhere, and certainly people in in Russia. Uh, and I say elsewhere, I mean outside of the sort of NATO, NATO countries. They, you know, this this whole moral kind of, oh, what's happening in Ukraine is so unique and horrible. They, I mean, it's, it's laughable because the reality is is that even right now, if you look last seven years, what what the Saudis with Canadian weapons and, and effective diplomatic support um, have done in Yemen is is worse than than what's uh, happening in Ukraine. Now, what I think is different is that the sort of geopolitical stakes of what's going on in Ukraine are greater, in large part because the we talk we are talking about the two main nuclear powers. As the history of of warfare uh, uh, tells us, is that you know you might not, no one may have planned to escalate to a certain point, but the dynamics of conflict engender situations that become very difficult uh, to back away from once you get down that path. And so that always, that's always, a, you know, the danger of, of things spiraling out of control beyond what even, you know, the Biden administration may have wanted or what Putin may have wanted from the get-go. Um, and so that, that's, that has to be uh, taken very seriously. And, and that's part of why I think that, you know, we're correct in in devoting uh, significant attention to Ukraine, maybe you know, in ways that are you know, different than other conflicts, because the geopolitical stakes and the consequences are potentially uh, that much greater. But but no, but the, but basically the basic underlying, and that's just where you know, you know, this business about you know Western officials saying you can't just redraw borders. Uh, by force of arms. Well, you know, we're, we're supporting our, our ally, Israel, that's, you know, annexed the Golden Heights from Syria, that's stolen Palestinian land. Uh, if you look at 1999 and the 
the breaking up the former Yugoslavia was done in large part by force of arms, including a NATO bombing. The you know moral righteousness and these sort of high-minded comments from uh, Western officials are just are just uh, you know sort of uh, transparently hypocritical. Um, again, that doesn't in any way justify what Russia is doing. I think what Russia is doing is illegal and is brutal, but there's been lots of uh, illegal and brutal policies pursued by uh, by Washington and, and Ottawa. You listen to Latin Ways. To support our work, please visit latinwaysmedia.com and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month. Thank you for listening. Including what they did with indigenous people last year in the U.S. and what Canada is doing here and with Suwatin territory, you know, against the indigenous people. So, yeah. It's not just hypocritical, but it's the... The impunity, which with all this death have been caused, you know, more than 400,000 people have died in Yemen in the last seven years by U.S. and, you know, ally-sponsored weapons in that war, you know. And Palestinians have lost 90% of their lands, and at least 13 children were killed this year so far. So, you know, the cost of war is always bared by the people. As the poet Galliano said, apathy is not a luxury we can afford. <laughs> so we must engage and we must continue to, you know, f- seek the truth and, and to unite and, and organize ourselves because that's the only way we're going to change it. I mean, leaders have proven to be in the service of corporate interests, whether it be the arm industry or whether it be you know, the agribusiness, the pharmaceuticals, whatever it is, they're not serving their interests. I wonder if you could talk about what are some of the ways that you keep yourself um, energized, inspired, and moving towards a path that can lead us to reconciliation, a path that can truly lead us to a world with peace. We, we see positive developments and negative developments all around us. I mean, if you look at uh, the struggle against homophobia uh, in my lifetime, you know, I've seen you know, incredible advances in the last couple of decades. And, uh, if you look at struggles against uh, racism, you see major uh, victories in, uh, in North America in, in, in recent uh, decades. Those didn't just you know, fall from the sky. Those because people struggled and uh, and people uh, you know made those gains. And so I think that those victories are, are possible. I mean, on international issues, if you look at the question of Palestine, you know, as horrible as what Israel's doing to Palestinians, uh, you see a major uh, sea change among uh, Canadian public opinion on on the question. You, you know, I, I I published a book in 2010 called Canada and Israel Building Apartheid. And I was told by uh, by journalists at the time well, I couldn't couldn't review couldn't even review the book because the word apartheid was in the title. Now you have in the last uh, eighteen months or so you have uh, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, UN Special Rapporteur, the Salam, They've all published reports detailing uh, Israel's uh, um, role in the, in committing the crime of apartheid. So those academics and those you know, human rights groups didn't just do that because they one day said, oh, Israel's committing apartheid. I mean, that's been, that's been clear for a long time. It's because of the activism that, that had been, uh, you know, building. And, and so, and then once 
Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, which are you know mainstream organizations, once they publish those reports, then you have the NDP uh, foreign affairs critic raising the question in the House of Commons. We have more and more MPs, including Liberal MP, just a couple of days ago, uh, raising the question of apartheid. So this is how change happens: is through people campaigning, often obscured. Uh, they don't end up getting recognition. Unfortunately, that's one of the you know powerful ways in which our our political system uh, maintains itself is that it denies the importance of, of activism and having made so many gains over the years and sort of, you know, just like as if someday, one day, these, you know, politicians just realize this is the right thing to do rather than, you know, decades often, or certainly years, but usually decades of, of, uh, of volunteers campaigning on issues. So, I think that that's uh, that's the reality of, of social change, and I you know I I draw uh, inspiration from that. And, and and of course we have to also be really clear. I mean, as demoralizing as certain things can be, and you know that I see going on in the world, um, the struggles in Canada are <laughs> this is very easy compared to the history, right? Yeah, yes, it's it's to be demoralized by uh, you know corporations continuing to win. And, and arms companies can you know, win is, is, is you know, it's demoralizing. But it's nothing compared to, you know, the history of those who, you know, let's say the Haitian Revolution, where they, you know, people were brutalized and murdered in the most horrific ways when they rose up against enslavement. We live in a relatively, uh, very propagandized, but a relatively free uh, society in terms of, uh, you know, what the direct costs were, were probably not going to get. Uh, murdered by the state, or, or you know, beaten even, you know, beaten by the police for you know challenging uh, politicians, or you know, so so I think we have to be um, uh, you know use that space that we do have, yeah. And so so I think the inspiration is from the fact that yes, activists win; they have won, and they, they continue to win. Um, and uh, also to be to be sort of clear clear eyed in terms of. Um, what the real costs are? Yes, there are costs. Yes, activists get get marginalized by the by the mainstream power structures. Uh, yes, you usually lose in the short term. Whenever you're fa- you're, you're fighting power, you're, you're invariably, almost by definition, you're going to mostly lose in the short term. But if you look at the long long picture, um, that's precisely what what makes for uh, uh, you know better society and. Uh, less damaging uh, economic and uh, and uh, and political systems. I love you. Thank you. And thank you for all your books that are amazing. In addition to all the books you write, you've also take so much time to give. And I am particularly excited about your Canadian Foreign Policy Hour. Can you talk a, a little bit about this? Um, what's the, how did it start and, and where, how can people join you? <laughs> Yeah, basically, it's a new weekly um, hour-long uh, program Zoom session on uh, developments in Canadian foreign policy. Uh, we've done three sessions. It's uh, uh, People can uh, find out about it on my website, evingler.ca. Uh, and it basically just comes out of a, a book club that I did with for my book on the Canadian military, uh, Stand on God's Room, a people, People's History of Canadian Military, and we did a four sessions of a, a book club and then people wanted to uh, to continue on with uh, having these uh, uh, sessions so I decided to actually formalize it and, and, and open it up to a to a broader uh, public and uh, the first three sessions have been uh, have been quite good and people can check that out on my 
they're up, uploaded on my YouTube uh, YouTube channel, and uh, and yeah, I invite people to uh, 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 join. And and also, I my articles are are all appear on my website evenglow.ca if people want to check that out as well. Thank you again for all your work, and thank you for that injection of hope and energizing active hope really because you know hope is not something that we dream about hope is something we create by our daily acting and activism thank you again for being with us thank you Take care. we're going to end the show with a song by David Rovix we are everywhere this is Sylvia Richardson thank you for listening say the hungry should have food I speak for many when I say no one should have seven homes while some don't have any though I may find myself stranded in some strange place with naught but a vapid stare I remember the world that I know we are everywhere when I say the time for the rich it will come let me count the ways victories are hints of the future Havana, Caracas, Chiapas, Buenos Aires how many people are wanting and waiting and fighting for their share they hide in their ivory towers but we are everywhere religions and prisons and races borders and nations FBI agents and congressmen and corporate radio stations they try to keep us apart but we find each other and the rulers are always aware that they're a tiny minority and we are everywhere with every bomb that they drop every home they destroy Every land they invade Comes a new generation from under the rubble saying We are not afraid They will pretend we are few But with each child that a billion mothers bear Comes the next demonstration That we are everywhere Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.